It is a beautiful morning, isn't it? It's a lovely time of the year. And it's a wonderful opportunity that we have just to be here where we are doing what we're doing. It is a great gift. Can sometimes take these things. We're, we're so fortunate we can take these things for granted. And it can be very helpful just to reflect a little bit on how incredibly lucky we are to be where we are and the circumstances we are. And of course, can sometimes, sometimes only see things from the more negative side. There's a, a natural tendency we have to look at things that way. So I want you to intentionally cultivate an attitude of remembering what's good, seeing what's positive, and uh, having an attitude of appreciation and gratitude. <coughs> Excuse me. One of the things that happens in the process of meditation is that uh, a, a mental state of joy arises, a very powerful uh, shift in the way your mind works. Um, there's, there's a word for it in Pali, the word is piti. refers to an intense state of joy. In, uh, there's another word in Pali, uh, sukha, which means pleasure or happiness. You know, we have corresponding English words are joy and happiness. In, in the uh, Pali, though, the they make a, a distinction between these two that we don't often make in English. Joy is a mental state, and happiness is a feeling. And joy is a mental state. It's a very interesting thing. You know, a, a state that your mind as a whole is in. Your mind shifts from one state to another. And the state your mind is in has a profound effect on well, has a profound effect on how your mind works, but it has a profound effect on your conscious experience. In a mental state of joy, your attention, you know, you can't pay attention to everything. You can't even be aware of everything, right? So there's a selective process. In the mental state of joy, you tend to notice and attend to and be aware of what is good and what is positive, what is beautiful. So this is this is one of the effects of the mental state of joy. <clears throat> it also affects how you perceive what you attend to. So your attention goes to something 
and uh, you know, to use the analogy of the glass that's half full and half empty. In a state of joy, your perception of whatever it is that you direct your attention towards is of the glass is half full, not half empty, not neither full nor empty, but you perceive as you, you perceive the fullness that it, it does have. In a, uh, rather than its half emptiness, right? The other thing that the mental state of joy affects about how your, your mind works is every experience you have has a feeling tone of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. When your mind's in a state of joy, it shifts in the direction of the positive. Now that means that something that was mildly pleasant becomes very strongly, you enjoy it very strongly, very greatly. Something that's neutral even becomes pleasant. In a state of joy, just the act, simple act of breathing is pleasure, whereas most of the time breathing is pretty neutral, right? So even the very simple, neutral things become become pleasurable. You know what joy is like. It's just, you, everything's wonderful. Oh, the sun feels so good, the light's so beautiful, everything's just, you know, that's what it does to you. Things that are mildly unpleasant, they're neutral. Things that are extremely unpleasant, well, not so bad after all. Right? shifts everything in that positive direction. So, um, PT refers to that kind of mental state. Maybe to help you understand that, consider its opposite. The opposite of joy is sadness, right? Sadness and grief. When you're in a state of sadness or grief, you tend to notice what's ugly and dirty and broken and wrong, right? And for sure, you definitely see the glass is half empty. There's something wrong with that. And it shifts everything the other way. Things that you would normally find enjoyable just don't do it for you at all, right? And anything that is unpleasant is just excruciatingly unpleasant. You got, so these are mental states. As a matter of fact, all emotions fall into the category of mental states. Emotions put your mind in a particular way of, of functioning, and it tends to, uh, any particular emotional state takes all these different mental functions and sets them to operate in a particular way. Anger, fear, joy, sadness, these are all mental states that strongly bias different aspects of your mind's function and produce that very recognizable experience. Joy is a mental state. Happiness is a feeling. And as we already said, joy affects the feeling tone of everything. It moves everything in a positive direction. So happiness is something different than joy. 
But when you're in a mental state of joy, you experience happiness. You also experience physical pleasure. You experience pleasure of all kinds. Anything that is inherently pleasurable is, is more pleasurable. And even those things that wouldn't normally be become so. So happiness is happiness and pleasure are a result of the mental state of joy. They're also a cause. <clears throat> when when good things happen to you, when you have pleasant experiences, they can't help move the mind into a state of joy. But when when something something really wonderfully good happens to you, you can become joyful. You uh, you win the lottery, right? You fall in love, or well, no, that doesn't necessarily make you joyful. It's when you fall in love and the other person loves you too. Yeah, state of joy. Some, you know, there's all kinds of large and small things that happen in our life. And they make us happy, and that happiness can move us into the mental state of joy. So after that thing's happened, everything else looks better. You know, the problems that we were worrying about, is, eh, it doesn't matter that much. I can, it gives you a lot of confidence, right? I can deal with that. I can handle those things, right? So... There is this relationship between happiness and joy. Joy causes happiness, happiness causes joy. There's the ingredients for what's called a positive feedback cycle. More of one causes more of the other, and more of the other causes more of the first. <coughs> now, back to meditation. What happens as you as, as you successfully train your mind through meditation, change the way it works. Um, you, you've heard the term samadhi. Okay. Samadhi means to, uh, to draw together or to pull together. So you're pulling the mind together. And as your attention stabilizes, really what's happening is all the internal conflict in your mind and all the diverse ideas that different parts of your mind have about what's what's the best thing to do, what's the what's the shortest route to happiness, so on and so forth. They're all going in different directions. And as your mind draws together and starts to enter into a state of harmony, uh, cooperativity, mutual reinforcement, internal conflicts disappear. <clears throat> we call this unification of mind. As your mind becomes more unified, which you could regard as one of the major goals of meditation is to unify your mind. The more unified your mind is, the more internal harmony there is in your own mind. The more joyful you feel. It creates a state of joy. Unification and joy are kind of two different ways of describing or looking at the same thing. 
the other thing that comes with uh, unification is energy. When the different parts of your mind are struggling against each other, then a lot of the potential energy that you have is is being uselessly dispersed in those inner struggles. And as your mind becomes unified, that energy becomes available for other things. As a matter of fact, when this happens in meditation, uh, it manifests in a variety of ways. One of which is we often feel as though there are powerful energy currents moving through our body which can be disturbing and disruptive at first, but then as everything begins to smooth out, you have this much more powerfully energized mind, and, and you feel it and experience it in many ways. So unification is, unification the joy that comes with it and the energy that comes with it are, are really products of the meditation process, and they're really part of the purpose of meditation. But if we go back to the fact that <clears throat> there is this positive feedback kind of process that takes place, you can enhance the unification of your mind. You can bring yourself to a state of joy more quickly by intentionally using your mind in the ways that produce positive affect, positive experiences. So if you, to the degree to which you intentionally ignore the negative and the undesirable and the disturbing and the painful, and intentionally make note of and keep in mind the positive, the wholesome, the beautiful. This, this is going to move your mind in the right direction. When you catch yourself in the act of perception, seeing what's wrong with somebody, seeing what's wrong with some situation, or seeing how something really could and should be better than it is, you have the ability to let go of that way of thinking and intentionally notice uh, the positive aspect. You can, see, in other words, you tell yourself, yeah, okay, so maybe the glass is half empty, but that's not what's important. What's important is it's still half full, right? So you can intentionally shift your perceptions in a particular way. And you, you can't directly do too much about the feeling tone that is associated with any particular mental or physical event. You know, if it's unpleasant, it's unpleasant. If it's pleasant, it's pleasant. But what you can do with these other two things is you can in intentionally be aware of and attend to that which is more pleasant. And you can intentionally not attend to that which is most unpleasant, just allow it to be there in the background of awareness. So in these ways, 
if if you make this a part of your meditation practice, and by extension, if you make this a part of the way you live your life in general, but if you make this a part of your meditation practice, you are going to speed up this process of unification of your mind, and you are going to enter into this state of joy and increased energy that much more quickly and that much more easily. that's, that's what I want to focus on first here this morning. You see how it works, though? Now, let's bring it down to earth in practical terms. You're sitting there meditating. You're, you're putting your intention on the ground. You're comfortable. And everything's going pretty well. And then these other thoughts and concerns come into your mind. And pull you away from this, some problem comes up and you you keep trying to come back to the breath, but every time that this problem intrudes in your mind, you start to feel more and more agitation and discomfort and so forth, right? You have that experience? Or a lot of times the things that come up are just, they're useless, trivial nonsense, just distractions of no particular value. Now, where do these come from? Where do these distractions come from? Well, I'll tell you. There's a part of your mind that sincerely believes that for the sake of your long-term happiness and well-being, your time would be better spent mulling over this same old problem rather than watching the stupid breath. And that's what it's saying. Or there's some other part of your mind that says, you know, it would be a lot more fun to be thinking about this. So that's what's really happening. What you're experiencing when you start to have these different distractions coming into awareness and competing for your attention, that is a manifestation of the fact that there are many different parts to you. And while they all may ultimately have the intention of of trying to achieve the the greatest happiness and well-being of the whole of what you are, they all have totally different ideas about how to get to there from here and what's the best use of your time and energy in the moment. So you're experiencing internal conflict in meditation. And, of course, by the time this is happening, you've been sitting long enough so that maybe where your ankle presses against the the cushion that you're sitting on, it's starting to have this burning feeling. And then that old pain in your shoulder that always shows up after you've been sitting for a while and the tension starts to build up and things like that. These start to intrude, and the tendency of your mind now is, you know, uh, my meditation started out pretty good, but now there's more and more distraction. Body felt really comfortable at first, but now, now my foot has this burning feeling, and my shoulder has this aching feeling, whatever else is happening. You see what's happening with your mental state. Now, you tend, 
naturally to get caught up in that. And so you're sitting in there, you're sitting there in a state of struggle and growing disappointment. Your expectations aren't being met, so on and so forth. <clears throat> so all these other parts of your mind, they just want us to be happy, right? And they see that this is going downhill. So now they jumped in with their ideas of, of how we can make this better. Like, you know, let's, let's quit this nonsense and go have a cup of tea or whatever. Or let's, let's think about something more pleasant. Okay? The mind is becoming more and more disunified. There is something that you can do about that. Uh, I, I like to compare all these different parts of your mind with all their different ideas of what's the best thing to be doing to a herd of cats. And that part of your mind that has learned about meditation, studied the Dharma and everything else, and says, it says, okay, we've got to get all these cats going in the same direction at the same time. So we've got a herd of cats. And uh, how do you herd cats? But a can of tuna fish, exactly. Okay. <laughs> so what's 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 the what's the tuna fish of the mind? Well, it's happiness, it's enjoyment, it's the pleasantness, and you can do this when you find in your meditation, emphasize the good, emphasize the pleasant, emphasize the happiness, no matter how much you're ankle may burn or your shoulder may ache, there's other parts of your body that feel really good, right? But the tendency is to forget those and to focus on, on the other. But that's something that you can do something about. Um, when the nagging problem comes into your mind, the tendency is you, you don't want it to be there because you're trying to do something else. And so Instead, you find yourself fighting with this nagging problem that wants to come up and be thought about. The alternative is to have a different kind of thought, like, yeah, I've got this problem, but right now I don't need to de de deal with it. It might as well not exist. It's a, I can just let it be there in the background of my awareness but instead, what I can attend to is, here I am, comfortable in this nice place, with this time that I've set aside that I've got nothing else to do but to see if I can't move myself in, in the direction of a much more positive way of living and seeing things and being in the world. That's the positive side, right? There's, there's lots of time to solve the problem later, and now I have this opportunity to bring myself to a state of mind that's going to make it easier to deal with that problem when that later comes around. So you, you counteract it in these ways. So this is the whole formula here, is that <clears throat> counteract any negative thought or feeling by uh, trying to find its positive counterpart. 
And when you find its positive counterpart, go back to your practice while keeping that in awareness. And you're not trying to drive anything out of your consciousness. You're just trying to exercise some, some balance here. So, right? And this, the more balance there is in, in those things that are arising in your consciousness and that you're holding in your consciousness, then the easier it's going to be to continue with doing the practice. The more you enjoy, the more enjoyment and satisfaction you derive from the act of meditation, the easier it is to meditate. You know, what the message, if you are conscious of the fact that I feel better now, my mind is calmer, uh, I, I, I'm comfortable, I am happy, uh, there really are no immediate causes for stress, so on and so forth. The message that that sends, when you hold that in consciousness, all these other unconscious parts of your mind, the message they're getting is, hey, what we're doing, this is pretty good, right? So they're less inclined to jump in there and say, okay, let's do something else to make this, uh, to make this better. So, as a part of your meditation practice, you should always intentionally cultivate joy. So if you understood what I said about what joy is, a mental state, you use conscious intention, and the only things that you have any direct control over is what you, what you attend to and what you hold in, in your awareness, you know, and, and to the degree that you can, how you perceive that. So you cultivate that kind of mental state and by cultivating joy in meditation, your meditation is going to go better. You're going to enjoy it more. It's become easier. Your mind is going to start to unify around meditation uh, as, a, as a positive thing to be doing. As your mind becomes more unified through meditation, <clears throat> at first this may be a bit contrived, but that's all right. Because as the different parts of your mind start to shift into a place of harmony, a genuine unification starts to take place, and a much more profound sort of joy arises. So it's a positive feedback cycle. You intentionally cultivate joy by using intention in the ways that you can, and over time that causes this real deeper kind of joy to arise. Meditation is all about cultivating joy. <clears throat> By meditating, you ultimately cultivate the joy of meditation that's called piti. But by intentionally cultivating joy in all these little ways, you bring that about much more quickly and easily. Okay? Any questions about this? Any yebats? <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this is on topic or not, but um, where does the mind live? And ask another way, where do I stand when I meditate? I seem to be getting different results when I stand in different places. What do you mean by stand in different places? Like, 
It seems like I can reside in different parts of my mind or my heart or my body. Okay, yes, I, I, would, I would agree with that totally. Although I would describe it <clears throat> a little differently. <clears throat> your, your mind has many different parts to it. And there, there is no I or self. Instead, the, you, you say where I stand, and I'd say the I that I am at any particular moment consists of a temporary coalition of some of those many parts of myself. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we all have these many selves, and as you know, as the composition of the self is continuously changing, some parts drop out and go to sleep and other parts join in, then you would describe that as I'm standing in different places at different times. I just look at it in a slightly different way. It has a profound effect. Um, all, these, all these different parts of your mind they have different functions that they perform, different things that uh, tasks that they're responsible for, um, and the way they operate and the way they fulfill those functions is a result of your past conditioning. Okay, and a lot of that is not terribly good programming. You learn to. Uh, deal with certain kinds of situations when you were 10 years old you know, in a particular way. And it might have worked really well when you were 10 years old. But now you're 40 and in certain kinds of situations you still act like a 10 year old. So there's many much more subtle examples of that. But your personality is basically we talk about a person's personality. Look at this person. How they behave in certain situations, how they respond to particular things, you know, how they think and how they feel and, and what they say and do, depending on the circumstances they find themselves. You know, we say that's their personality. He's such and such kind of a person, but of course it's there's many different facets to that. Well, if we look at that more closely, what's happening is in a particular situation, there's a certain subset of all those parts of who you are that step forward and take control. And they interpret the situation and they produce the emotions and they produce the thoughts <coughs> that their past conditioning has, has programmed them to do. So that's why you react and behave in that particular way, that particular situation. And when we look at any real human being, we see a lot of conflicts, you know. Like, he's such a nice guy most of the time, but when such and such happens, boy, he turns into a real jerk. Well, he's really, in a sense, two different people in those different situations. The different, different personas emerge based on these different parts of themselves. And considering that all these different parts of yourself, some of them 
their programming has come from very positive experiences and their, their way of responding and reacting is very effective. I mean, what constitutes effective? Well, effective means that <clears throat> uh, the way of responding is conducive to greater happiness and well-being uh, for themselves and, and for the people around them. But we have a lot of flawed programming, and so we have a lot of aspects to our personality that don't work nearly as well as they could. Some of them are absolutely horrible, and some of them are just inconvenient. There are other aspects that are really great. That's, that's the good side of it. But it's because there's all these different parts of ourselves. And that, that's the problem. How do we change that? Well, that's a really big thing that <clears throat> comes out of meditation. Mindfulness. Remember the definition of mindfulness that I gave you? Anybody? So, looking at uh, keeping in balance what you're focused on and what's in the background. It's the optimal interaction between peripheral awareness and attention. And um, and it where it becomes re where mindfulness becomes really valuable is where it has this sort of metacognitive introspective aspect to it. So you're seeing what's happening. You know, there's a part of you that uh, while you're you're thinking and feeling and saying and doing is observing the process from a larger perspective. Uh, you, in awareness, you remain aware of the whole context, not just totally focused on the particular instance that is triggering some part of your mind to produce some particular emotion and to initiate some programmed way of, of speaking, you know, tone of voice, choice of words, so on and so forth. There's a part of you that's watching that all happening. And as you're... Uh, one way of describing mindfulness is knowing, knowing what you're doing, why you're doing it, and most important of all, whether or not it's appropriate to, uh, to the situation, uh, to your, your goals and intentions, and to your personal values and beliefs. Because isn't, isn't that where the problem comes, is we do and say things that are appropriate to the situation, that uh, aren't really conducive to achieving our, what are our real goals and intentions. You know, we blow the situation because we lose it and say something we shouldn't. Uh, that uh, we end up doing and saying things that are really not at all consistent with our values, with our beliefs, with what we think is important, with who we want to be. So when you have this optimal interaction of peripheral awareness and attention, you know, and what's optimal is going to be different in different situations, of course, but you have mindfulness when that interaction is optimal. And when that interaction is optimal, you know what you're doing and why you're doing and doing it and whether or not it's appropriate to be. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can do anything about it in the moment. But what happens when some, some part of your mind that has been conditioned by 
what worked when you were 10 and some bad thing that happened to you when you were 17 and what you went through when you divorced at 33 and then here you are at 40 and this collection of things keeps kicking in at certain times and making a bit of a mess of your life. Every time that happens, you walk into the situation, that part of your mind says, aha, time for me to do my thing, does its thing, you make a mess, and then that part of your mind goes back to sleep. And it never really knows what a mess it made of things. Because as far as it's concerned, hey, when I was 10, and when I was 17, and I was 33, you know, these worked, at least at the time, at least as far as I knew at the moment, at, at the time they worked. You know, and so that part of your mind says, okay, done my job, finished, goes back to sleep. If you have mindfulness, though, then your consciousness continues to see the consequences of your action and to see them clearly and non-judgmentally and without a lot of distortion. And it makes it hard for that other part of your mind to go back to sleep. I mean, when you make a mess of things and what happens in consciousness is the thought, oh well, it wasn't my fault, they were just being a jerk, you know. Well, of course I reacted that way, I mean, so would anybody else. You know, that's, this, this is the kind of thing we usually think, and that's what allows that part of your mind to go back to sleep, you know. So, well, I've done what I can, you know, good luck. <laughs> you keep, when you practice mindfulness, though, that part of your mind can't go back to sleep. Instead, it's looking and saying, oh my gosh, maybe the way I deal with these things isn't the best way. And the effect that has is the next time you're in that situation, you're less, you know, you're less likely to be so totally overwhelmed by the same sequence of events. Uh, you may not necessarily be spared, but if you practice, if you are mindful the next time this comes up, you know, it's not going to take too many of these occasions before that part of your mind that's been making a mess of things reprograms itself and says, okay, we're going to do things a little bit differently in the future. This is just not working. Mindfulness is about having that conscious recognition without the overlay of excuses and justification and, and everything else. It's, uh, that it provides the information for these parts of your psyche to reprogram themselves. Because after all, they were only doing what they did that made a mess of things. Because as far as they knew, it was the best thing to do. If you're a person that tends to become angry easily, it's because there's parts of your psyche that are totally convinced that becoming angry is the best way to deal with most situations. The rest of your psyche knows, no, it's not good. I, I, it just makes me feel terrible when I get angry and spoils the rest of my day and other people get mad at me in turn and then I end up with all kinds of other problems. The rest of your psyche knows that, but the part of your psyche that is said, uh, okay, Getting angry is the best way to take care of things. It's got to it's got to get some different information before it's going to change. 
Yeah. And that's what mindfulness does, provides the information. Yeah. Oftentimes, anger is a consequence of, a, of perceiving an injustice. And it's not very effective for me to say, oh, darn, I lost my temper there and shouldn't have. Um, that's right, it's, it's not. It's, 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 I've got to get to the root of what the hell did I think was going on? And that catching that moment of this is not fair Okay. It's very hard. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so you. You. You say. Okay. You said that. That uh, you become angry because of a, a sense of injustice, and that saying to yourself, "Oh, that was not a good way to respond." That doesn't work. That no. As a matter of fact. That's a whole different program from a whole different part of your mind that just wants to jump in and blame yourself and beat up that part of your mind that uh, made you angry. And that's just going to make the part of your mind that made you angry withdraw from the conversation that much more quickly. Feeling, feeling guilty, self-blame, self-judgment, all of these things. I guarantee you that is not mindfulness and it's not going to help. What mindfulness does is it just holds the real facts of the situation right out there in the open where it's hard for any part of your mind to, to ignore it. It, you know, it, it's, it's very important that it, it be just, it, what's important is not, oh, I shouldn't have done that. It's, okay, look how I feel now. Oh, look what I've got to deal with now as a result of that. <coughs> you know, no blame, no finger pointing, it's just, aha. Uh -huh. Yeah? I was thinking in a situation where you do see something unjust and you feel angry, the alternative isn't just to say, oh, I'm angry and I shouldn't be angry, but there's that scuffle means, you know? There's skillful means. Yeah. What's the best thing I can do in this situation? And maybe, I don't know how anger fits into there, but I mean, there is a question you can ask rather than just focusing on your own feelings about it. Yeah. Yes, let's generalize the whole thing. Not just anger, but any kind of inappropriate emotional reaction, any kind of uh, inappropriate way of... of, uh, of thinking or feeling or behaving or speaking, whatever. <clears throat> kind of lost the train of where I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, it's, Anytime you bring mindfulness to bear on your behavior, on what's, it's not just behavior, on what's happening in the moment. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. And uh, uh, this, this is a good thing to be doing or this isn't a good thing to do. That's what the appropriateness of it is. So whenever mindfulness brings you to recognition that that's what's happening is, is not appropriate, uh, 
the most important thing that's happening is the information that mindfulness is providing. But the other thing is that it gives you an opportunity to moderate your behavior. Now, the, I, that is, that may seem like it's the most important thing, but I'll explain to you why it's not. It's the second most important thing. To the degree that you can restrain yourself from saying something that you're about to say, that's really good. Or even to the degree that after you've said it, you can say, look, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. That's really good. Those things are all really good. And, of course, if you're able to do that and you continue to be mindful, then this is a whole additional new set of information that you're providing to these different parts of your mind that are going to alter the way uh, things happen in the future. But the most important thing is the information. And even if you can't change what you say and do. As a matter of fact, even if you don't even bring mindfulness into it until an hour after it happened, or several hours after it happened, the positive effect is still going to be uh, there in terms of providing that information. So you had a bad situation, and you did what you always do, and afterwards you did all the same kind of rationalization and justification or self-distraction, I'm not going to think about that, you know, you feel so bad about what you did that you do anything you can not to think about. You do all the usual stuff. But then, later on, you come to that place where you're calm enough and clear enough that you can be mindful, recall the situation. Recall the situation, and don't relive it, because the way you lived it wasn't good. Just recall the situation from this place of mindfulness. <laughs> Recalling the situation is going to re-engage those parts of your mind that uh, were part of the whole melodrama as it unfolded. And by recollecting what happened, and the consequences, and how it made you feel afterwards, and so on and so forth. And then even perhaps thinking about, well, now, had I done this differently, or whatever, this, now you're still doing the same thing. You're providing the information that's going to allow the parts of your mind to reprogram themselves. And so this is, this is the magic and power of mindfulness. And the more that you can be mindful in the moment, great. It's going to produce long-term changes in who you are and what you do. But even being mindful retrospectively is a powerful tool. And if you are mindful retrospectively, you're far more likely to be mindful in the moment the next time. And if you can be mindful in the moment, even though you can't change your reactions and behaviors, it's going to make that, that mindfulness is going to make it that much easier for the next time for you not only to be mindful in the moment, but this time maybe to moderate your emotions and maybe moderate some of the, some of what you do and say. So with each with each cycle it gets better and you will come to you will come to the point 
where those parts of your mind that were running flawed programs have fixed their programs. And now you handle those situations with wonderful aplomb. You sail right through them. Um, I, I can see how the thought mindful, being mindful, retrospectively can easily turn into sort of mulling over certain ideas or, or a situation that happened. Yeah. So it seems to be maybe being mindful retrospectively would be really just recognizing just seeing what happened yeah. and, and how and maybe how yeah. how you feel about it and yeah. if it makes you feel negative then maybe there's something that you could be more mindful yeah. of during this It's very important that you don't relive the event because that will actually reinforce everything. Right. You know, so and we all do that, right? We afterwards we we, we relive the whole thing and we get you know, we get hurt by the same things and angry by the same things and, and made afraid by the same things and that's really no no what I'm talking about is is, is it's a it's a reflection on it. It's not a reliving of it. And it's a reflection from a much more objective place. It's not mindfulness when you relive it. It's only mindfulness when you're examining it from but it, it's only mindfulness when awareness and attention are in balance and, and functioning properly. Uh, and it's only mindfulness when you have this kind of metacognitive, introspective perspective that you bring to the experience. Then it's mindful. I, then I just had a second. Uh, I think what the what the these two ladies were talking about was the just, the, or at least what I got from the kitchen about the uh, having sort of a angry reactions to injustices. I think, I think you've talked a little about like right action in the past, I yeah. believe, and I think that's kind of what, that's what I got, like ha using right action to, um, to use when feeling, when feelings of injustice ar arise, and, and using, transforming um, anger into, into right action, so, uh, in, in the moment, rather than, rather yeah. than waiting and, and yeah. seeing how, you know, how things unfold, but to actually use your energy right then. And, <coughs> To, to the yes, and that's what I say. To the extent that you can moderate your behavior, you do so. You have to be realistic and continue to be mindful. It, it doesn't help if uh, you succeed in moderating your behavior and then you turn the mindfulness off, because really the important part of the information that you want to you want taken in is that by moderating your behavior, the result was better, right? So you want the mindfulness to to continue. Yeah. You said something about um, uh, the mindfulness brings the behavior into the light so you can see where it's appropriate. Right? You said something yeah. like that, right? But where does the appropriate live? <laughs> well, the, the, the appropriate. <clears throat> this is this is something that. Uh, It, it lives in different parts of your mind. One of the reasons that we have so many internal conflicts is that different parts of our mind see different things as, as being appropriate in different ways. Um, when at, one of the benefits that come from meditating and unifying your mind 
and practicing the Dharma. And meditation can't do everything. As a matter of fact, matter of fact meditation is only one of three components that bring about any change. But it's when all of the different parts of your mind are sharing the same values right. and beliefs. Right. So long as there's one part of your mind that believes in me at any cost, and this other part of your mind that uh, holds uh, uh, loving kindness and compassion as values, there's going to be a conflict between the two. And you could go the wrong way, and you could uh, unify your mind. All we, we all all the parts of my mind believe in me at any cost. To hell with the rest of the world. Not a good result, but at least for that individual, that would be the appropriate that they operate on the basis of. So it's the practice of virtue and wisdom that are going to help you uh, to establish an, an appropriate that works. But we have something built into us that works in the short term, and that's really what mindfulness exploits most. And that's that the one universal value that all the different parts of your mind hold is we want to be happy, we want to be free from suffering. It's all different notions about how to get there. Yeah, but it's, you know, you talk to anybody with ADD, yeah. and they have a different sense of what's appropriate. Of course. So where, did that, where, did, where did that come from? Because they're it's universal amongst uh, people with ADD. It's universal. People with ADD aren't a different kind of person. Say that again. People with ADD are not a different kind of person. They're the same as everybody else with one particular aspect of the way their mind works, a bit exaggerated. Everyone has ADD to some degree. And we put a label on those that have ADD to this degree. So everybody's that way. Everybody has all these different. Yeah, but the difference is is that most people are presented with a situation and learn from that situation, okay, and then it modifies their behavior. And no, most people don't. <laughs> if most people did, we'd live in a totally different world. That's how, that's, mindfulness is such a rare commodity, and it's only with mindfulness that that happens. Yeah. And people with ADD can be just as mindful as, as anyone else. Because, you know, it, it's, it's not... It's, we stabilize the attention in order to develop mindfulness because that's a really good way to do it. But even if your attention doesn't anchor very well, which is what ADD is, even if your attention lacks that ability to anchor, there are still other ways to become mindful. And mindfulness is its a rare thing. And people with ADD can become mindful just as well as anybody else. And everybody has just different degrees of ADD. So. Anyway, uh, this our, our conversation has been kind of evolving. What I wanted to do was to uh, 
to get this notion of the positive feedback cycle that creates joy and the way that joy can uh, uh, the way that deliberately cultivating joy can enormously enhance your meditation practice and speed you along the way. And I wanted to guide you in using that. We quite naturally moved into discussion of mindfulness because although I didn't label it such, but some of you, whether consciously or unconsciously, recognize that, hey, what he's talking about here somehow relates to these other situations, and, and they are connected. Another way that I could put this is, um, is that by showing you how to cultivate joy, what I'm really doing is showing you another way to exercise mindfulness in your meditation. Because after all, when you're not mindful in your meditation in this particular way, you make your practice more difficult. You come away from your practice thinking, boy, that was hard, or this wasn't a very good meditation today, or uh, I'm not sure if I can do this, and all these, you're creating a mental state. When you meditate with mindfulness, then you have more awareness of what's happening, why it's happening, whether or not you want it to be happening, and the tools for how to make it happen differently. So in a sense, practice, cultivating joy in meditation is a very important and serious way of practicing mindfulness. It's practicing mindfulness in one particular context for one particular purpose. But you see the similarity. You want to make your meditation go better by intention by, by using conscious intention in ways that facilitate bringing your mind into a state of harmony and it has this positive result. Well, this is what you want to do in your life too, right? Same thing. So it's just a particular instance of, of this larger thing. So I feel like that's why the, con the conversation took the turn that it did and I felt like it was a very positive turn and help everybody to understand and get clear. So, what I would like to do now is, uh, you've already been sitting here for an hour, uh, now I was going to talk for maybe 10-15 minutes and then you're going to do a meditation. I'm going to give you a break and when you come back we'll do the meditation, okay? So let's take 15 minutes now. <laughs>